This is Visibility Radio, and I'm Kenneth Poir. And with me again on this episode of All Things Digital, All Things Accessible is none other than Dr. Scott Hollier. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Kenneth. Great to be back again. Now, we're doing episode five, and in episode four, we covered quite a lot. Perhaps maybe you could give us a one-minute recap of what we talked about in episode four. Well, we've covered a lot. I mean, not just episode four. Yeah, we've covered everything from digital technologies through to uh, the Internet of Things, uh, future technologies such as um, wearables, virtual reality, augmented reality, and yes, driverless cars. Even there's just um, a, a lot going on at the moment, and a lot. very exciting about uh, where it's all heading and what works taking place to support it. Well, on this episode, we're going to touch on some of those things, but the focus is on standards. So, Scott, perhaps maybe you can tell us what is going on with standards that covers all these technologies. Well, it's great that you were asking before about what we've covered before because essentially all the things we've talked about up to this point uh, all tie in with really exciting work that's taking place internationally. So the World Wide Web Consortium, or W3C as it's known, is doing a lot of work in this space to try to support accessibility. And just to explain briefly why this is important, in order for accessibility to work effectively, two key things have to happen. Firstly, people with disabilities have to have the correct assistive technologies on the devices that they use, and we've covered a bit about how that applies to things like screen readers on our everyday devices. But those things won't work unless content is designed in an accessible way. So we need to make sure that our websites are designed accessible, that our apps are designed accessible. And we've also talked um, last time about uh, even making sure that the interface getting in and out of a driverless car is accessible. So it's really critical that moving forward we make sure that these things are accessible. And so coming back to W3C, they have an initiative called the Web Accessibility Initiative, or WAY as it's called. And in WAY, they've done a lot of work over the years to try and make sure that developers and producers of content and the people creating these devices do in fact create things in an accessible way. Just a little bit of background in this area and how it leads to now. The definitive world standard in this area is called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG as we call it version 2.0. And WCAG 2 is a series of 12 guidelines to provide guidance to ICT professionals on how they can create information. So for example, if you have your favorite app on your smartphone, if the buttons aren't labeled correctly and you are using a screen reader, it'll just read out unlabeled button. But if they've complied with that standard, then it will actually read out what that button is. And that really makes all the difference. I mean, we have such fantastic technology packed into our everyday devices now, but these technologies won't work unless uh, we have guidance on how to make it work. And that's really where these standards come into play. So with that in mind, um, the WCAG 2 standard has been uh, adopted around the world. And if we're talking about Australia, we're talking about WCAG 2 in, in our policies. If we're talking about Hong Kong or China or India or New Zealand, the EU, US, Canada, it's still all the WCAG 2 standards. So this is a definitive standard and so there's a lot of guidance at the moment on how to make things accessible. However, and this is where the importance of um, this discussion today comes in, is that initial WCAG 2 was created in 2008 and a lot's changed since 2008, including the whole 
touchscreen accessibility revolution that's taken place in mobile devices. The iPhone 3GS, uh, which had the first uh, consumer-based touchscreen reader, came out in 2009, for example. So the whole idea of accessibility on a touchscreen device came after the WCAG 2 standard. And up to now, we've been largely looking at, you know, how can we make WCAG 2 apply to this? But um, importantly, um, we're at a point now where new standards are being developed to specifically deal with not only the mobile web, but also the future. Right. Now, we're talking about standards. With technology going through periods of convergence and divergence, how difficult is it to get some uniformity? It it can be difficult. And look, one of the big things about the WCAG 2 standard, as opposed to WCAG 1, uh, which came out in 1999, was they realised quite quickly when they did WCAG 1 that the web was evolving so quickly that the standard was becoming outdated. And it only took really two years before they realised that you could make a WCAG 1.0 website that was technically compliant but still inaccessible because the technology was moving faster than the standard did. So that's really, when they did WCAG 2, they worked very hard to try and make sure that it was going to hold up over time. So they had what they called the four poor design principles, perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. And the robust part of that was really about making sure it's to some degree future-proof for uh, emerging technologies. However, even the best um, guidelines aren't going to hold up forever, and nine years on, uh, it's certainly become clear that uh, it's actually nearly 10 years on now. There's a real need to address that. So this is really where we see the need for these new standards, and there's two uh, new exciting paths that uh, W3 is uh, looking at. Right. Now, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we're talking about all things digital and all things accessible, and we're talking to Dr. Scott Hollier. And if you have questions, please remember the final episode is a session dedicated to all your questions. So we'll give you the details a little later on and file in your questions early so that we can address them. Now, Scott, just moving on, we're talking about guidelines. Now, how are these guidelines being administered and are they enforceable or are they basically left at the discretion of each manufacturer? That's an excellent question. So the guidelines are produced by the W3C and uh, those guidelines are publicly available and anyone can implement those guidelines. And different countries have addressed them in different ways and different companies have addressed them in different ways. So the good news is that when we talk about what to do, um, we're all on the same page. We all know that WCAG 2 is the standard we need to implement. And in the future, um, we currently are seeing uh, evolutions with that standard in WCAG 2.1 and Silver, which you know we'll probably talk about uh, shortly. But uh, to answer the question about how those standards are enforced, it really varies a lot from place to place. So if we take places like uh, the UK, for example, there's very strict rules about making sure that standard is um, applied. Um, In Australia, our our policies are a little bit more ad hoc. Uh, In the US, for example, there's legislation that actually requires um, WCAG 2 be implemented, especially in government. Here, there is policy around WCAG 2, but if it's not done There's not a lot of teeth in Australia. It would require someone to make a complaint uh, against Section 24 of the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992, and then uh, then that complaint would be made through the Human Rights Commission, and then it would get argued out. There's been a few uh, interesting cases on that. Um, Australia had the first legal precedent back in 2000 when um, Bruce Maguire, um, a blind man who uh, took the Sydney Organising Committee to the Olympic Games to court um, based on the WCAG 1 standard, and he won that case. Broadly speaking, unfortunately, there's not a lot of teeth in enforcing it. 
we all have um, the knowledge and the um, and the policy in place to say that um, the solution is WCAG 2 and that's what needs to be implemented at least until that is uh, updated. Mm. Now, outside the realm of legal requirements, there is still the possibility of social media groups doing what we would probably call as evaluative commentary. Do you think that might actually be one way of nudging manufacturers in the right direction? Absolutely. I think um, you know, social media and, and that call for things to be addressed is really importantly. Uh, it was only two years ago when there was a um, case against Coles for their website not being very accessible. I remember at the time when the case was first made by a blind woman that um, the website wasn't very accessible and you couldn't easily select all the groceries and finish completing your shopping before the site timed out. Initially, there was quite a bit of hostility from corporate Australia around the fact that someone would make such a complaint. But um, as that process evolved and as it gathered a lot of media attention and um, as social media went crazy um, for that case, um, by the end, uh, Coles did reach a settlement with that person. Coles issued a press statement saying that they welcomed the fact that there was that complaint made and they now have an appreciation of the requirements and uh, the site has been a lot better since. So I think uh, there is certainly something to be said for the power of social media and the more that uh, attention is drawn to this space, the uh, more accessible things get. Mm. Now, there's also the commercial pressure, I suppose, if one manufacturer has been doing this and is receiving a lot of kudos, it might encourage others to say, well, if the competition is doing this and they're receiving positive light, shouldn't we also get into the business of it? I'd like to think that's the case. And there is certainly an argument to be made that if one in five Australians have some type of disability, then that's a lot of people that could potentially be missing out on products and services, um, a lot of companies that can't get money spent with them uh, because their information is inaccessible. So I think there is an argument to be made that if uh, companies don't do the right thing, those, those dollars, those purchases might go elsewhere. So I think in the long run, that's that's quite likely at the moment, I think because there is a bit of a lack of teeth, certainly in Australia, that uh, the awareness hasn't been raised as much. But in the long run, I think that's certainly going to be a, a factor and um, competition is always a good space to say, OK, well, um, there's a big percentage of an audience that we're missing out on. Let's um, address that. And I think when it comes to putting accessibility features in products, as we talked about in our first chat, companies like Apple now put accessibility in their very first release of a device because they know there's a big market share there to be had. Mm, right. Now, let's go on to talk about specific technologies. We've talked about virtual reality, augmented reality, driverless cars. Um, tell us about how these standards are actually finding their way into all these different new developments. Well, this is really where things are getting exciting. So we have the WCAG 2 standard, and that is the definitive world standard in this space. However, it is changing, and there are two approaches that W3C are taking, and this ties in a little bit with my work uh, with W3C. So um, I'm part of a task force called the Research Questions Task Force with W3C, and we're a bit like an advanced scouting party where we um, research emerging trends of technology, and then we provide that information, assess the academic literature in the area, and provide that to other working groups. And at the moment, it's exciting that there are two avenues of standards development taking place to cater for virtual reality, uh, wearables, uh, driverless cars, exactly as you were saying, Kenneth. And the two things are firstly the WCAG 2.1 standard. And WCAG 2.1 is basically a terminology and slight update to WCAG 2 to cater for the mobile web. 
And the other one is called Silver, uh, also known as most likely Accessibility Guidelines 3.0. And the reason it's codenamed Silver for any uh, chemistry buffs out there is because um, Accessibility Guideline is AG, an abbreviation, and that um, yeah, matches up with Silver on the uh, periodic table, I believe. So no one should say that W3C doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> so WCAG 2.1, which will be released uh, mid-2018, that's really going to ensure that um, WCAG 2 applies directly to mobile devices. And the important change of WCAG 2.1 is that it will require testing um, on the mobile platform, as at the moment with WCAG 2, you can choose whether you want it on desktop or mobile. But WCAG 2.1 provides some specific guidance on how to ensure that mobile content, be it um, mobile web content or mobile app content, is accessible. So that should be um, a formal standard by about mid-2018, and that's really exciting. Uh, Silver, on the other hand, um, I've seen some optimistic timeframes around 2020. I do agree that that's quite optimistic, because what Silver is trying to do is, at the moment, there's a separate guideline for different things. So if we're talking about authoring tools, the tools developers use to create things, that has its own guidelines called ATAG. And when we're talking about web browsers and media players, that also has its own guidelines called UAG. So what um, Silver aims to do is to get ATAG, the authoring tool guidelines, UAG, the user agent guidelines, and WCAG, roll them all together, plus add things for virtual reality, plus augmented reality, plus wearables, plus driverless cars, and plus probably things that we haven't even uh, thought of yet. And they're going to roll all those into one standard. Now, Personally, I think that makes a lot of sense because it's getting to a point now where you can't have a new set of guidelines and standards for every time a new technology comes out. It's just getting uh, getting unwieldy for um, developers to be able to know what to do. So I think ultimately you do need to have one set of guidelines that will apply across the board. However, that is a very complicated thing to do and um, and so I think it will be several years away before we get to a space where that's the case. So WCAG 2.1 will be a good stopgap measure in dealing with the now. Um, whilst Silver will look to the future. And I think it's a good approach to have those two separate streams. And um, yes, I've really enjoyed my involvement um, with the Research Questions Task Force as a part of that. Right. Now, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of a customer and I'm going out there and I'm saying, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this device, I'm going to buy that home system. What would I be looking for? Will there be some sort of certification that will provide me with the assurance that these are compliant? That's a very, very good question. It's To date, they've been hesitant to have specific uh, compliance recommendation because, for example, in the web scenario, a website might be completely WCAG 2.0 compliant today, but uh, may not be compliant where, as soon as someone changes some content on it. So there's been hesitation to provide that sort of certificate of authenticity, if you like, when it comes to complying with the standard. However, uh, I think as we see products emerge in the future, there will be very clear guidance on how to make sure that happens. I mean, for example, as we were talking about last time about the Internet of Things, if um, a device like a Google Home were used as a uh, at a reception kiosk, say you went to a building and you've, uh, instead of having a person there, you just have a Google Home to uh, talk to and it gives you information about how to get to places in the building. Well, that would work fine if you're vision impaired and you just want to talk to it. That would probably work fine if you were in a wheelchair um, to be able to verbally communicate with it. But what if you're hearing impaired? Well, you'd need to make sure that there's a screen attached to that Google Home so whoever talks to it can read the instructions rather than listening to them in response. So what um, Silver's trying to do is to try to do these type of things just to make sure that whatever technology we're talking about, whatever manufacturers are preparing, 
that uh, there is that assurance and certainty that um, manufacturers have the guidance they need to ensure that these devices are accessible right from the start. So we're not there yet with silver um, because technology is like the Internet of Things and as the price comes down for virtual reality or augmented reality, we're only just really seeing those become our everyday products. But I think it is exciting that um, in the not-too-distant future we will have the guidance needed and then manufacturers could certainly uh, say, yes, we comply with silver or yes, you know, we have ensured that disability is factored into our developments. So, yes, it's not quite there yet for these emerging products, but should be in the coming years. Mm. Now, we're talking about standards, Scott, and I think it would be remiss of me to ignore asking the question. We've heard the phrase, not everything that's legal is necessarily moral. Do you think there is space to embed moral standards into these standards? Your question reminds me of a conversation I had when I was undertaking my PhD um, about 10 years ago now. I was interviewing the accessibility directors of some of the big multinationals, and I asked a similar question to one of them, and I said, look, do you think that people do this type of work because of a moral imperative, the desire to you know, ultimately make a difference and try and help people? Or do you think it's because that there is this uh, legal requirement and that they'll only do it sort of you know, drag kicking and screaming? And the response I got from that person was, well, let me put it this way. People tend to do what you inspect rather than what you expect. And uh, that's, that's <laughs> always stuck with me ever since that, um, that interview. And so perhaps to answer your question, it's, it is a bit like that. I think sometimes um, companies are dragged into this because of legislation. Certainly a lot of the reason why we have accessibility features in our everyday products now was because of US legislation based on a draft of WCAG 1 back in 1998. And that's um, really led to companies initially just putting in the bare minimum into their operating systems and products. But over time, with that competitiveness that we talked about earlier, uh, those products have become fully featured in the operating systems, which really makes the difference. But there did need to be that little bit of a legal push to start with. It wasn't always because of that moral imperative. So, mm. so look, I think um, you know it's a little bit of a roundabout way to answer your question, I guess. But I think... I think these days people do want to do the right thing and I think companies, they could have stuck with a bare minimum but they have in fairness evolved their products to be genuine contenders um, in terms of supporting people with disability and because of that I think the moral arguments are there now. Yes, I think sometimes the big stick can still be a, a good motivator. So talking about the big stick, is there a formal watchdog organisation that's overseeing the whole development of these standards? It varies from country to country. So there's no watchdog as such within the W3C. Um, W3C, I, I like to sort of liken it a bit like the United Nations of the internet. So every company that's a member of the, of the W3C, and there's 471 of them as of um, a week ago, they all have a one representative, a little bit like the um, United Nations where every country has a representative and so all those representatives work together to try to um, then come up with ideas on what should be done. And from there, it breaks into working groups where they all then progress the uh, development of those standards. And that's part of my role. So I think when it comes to the significance of that, um, there's no one sort of overarching saying, you must do this. But the W3C comes to the conclusion based on research and um, evidence that these are the things that are needed based on what movements are taking place in the industry. And W3C, uh, under the leadership of Tim Berners-Lee, was what started the uh, World Wide Web initially um, through his creation. So 
it's got a good track record in creating solutions, and certainly in international policy and legislative frameworks, their solutions are adopted. So then, in terms of the teeth side of things, it really comes down to individual countries and jurisdictions as to how they implement the standards into their policies. As I said, in the US, uh, they have legislation that requires it to happen. In Australia, we have policy which can be argued under our legislation. If I could put a call out to any um, political leaders or legislators that might be listening, the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 has no specific reference to ICT accessibility. Uh, In fact, I don't think there's any reference to ICT at all. And so I think in this day and age, something that perhaps could be considered is the need to um, address that and make sure that there is something so that when people do have issues with accessibility, rather than arguing them against policy and then trying to prove that there is a a denial of information access, they could actually point to something in the Act and say, well, look, you know, ICT is basically an essential service now. Um, If you are denied access to the internet, you're denied access to um, a massive amount of information and uh, products and services. So in my opinion, there should be some, in Australia, we should have some provision of about ICT in the DDA. But it does vary from country to country, and I think that particular point will still be a long way off. Well, I'm glad you mentioned ICT because the role of telco companies and internet service providers would probably fall within these corridors of the legal framework if that goes forward. Absolutely. I'm a very strong believer that telcos and um, any consumer-based um, organisation that does interact directly with the consumer should um ensure that all their information is accessible, um, should ensure that their products and services are accessible. And I think the thing with the standards and why this um, is such an important conversation is because we know what to do. Uh, the W3C have very clear guidance on, you know, with WCAG 2, if you do these 12 things, it will be quite accessible. So it's not that we don't know what to do. We have really clear guidance on what to do. We have good policy to tell us what to do. Now it's just a matter of the doing part, which, you know, is, uh, is always a challenge. But, uh, but look, I also don't want to um, tie everyone with the same brush. There are a number of companies that are doing great work. And, uh, yes, they should be um, recognised for that as well. Right. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about those companies afterwards, but I have to ask you the other question. The application of all these standards, does it find itself into the workplace? Is HR an area where these things should become of greater attention as well? I think certainly um, we still have a an expectation in HR that um, when we have an onboarding process, for example, when we start a new job, that we're going to have to fill out paperwork, literally filling out paper. And I think companies like Microsoft have shown us that it doesn't have to be the way. You can have a very accessible onboarding process. It can be very discouraging as a person with a disability when you're capable of doing the job, but you have all these problems at the start just because you have to fill out your tax declaration form and you can't because it's on paper and things like that. So there's there's lots of ways to deal with this now, Um, but often it's those initial teething processes. Um, It might be the case that you're workstation, if it had Windows 10, you'd be completely fine, but it has Windows Vista and and all your accessibility stuff is missing. Um, And so there's these type of issues in the workplace that are restrictive. There's absolutely no reason why in a typical office environment, um, someone who's blind or vision impaired can't access and interact um, in everyday work. But the restrictions of what technology is available, the reliance on paper, These are all factors which unfortunately can prevent what should be a very accessible environment from being the case. So 
So it's a call out to employers to say, please keep your technology up to date in terms of the um, your workstations, your the operating systems on your devices. And also when you do have your internal systems, like you might have an internal CMS, you might have a, uh, an internal way of doing things, make sure those are accessible, compliant to WCAG 2. Make sure your documents are compliant to WCAG 2. Make sure um, all those websites and apps are compliant to that standard because ultimately once we have the technology we need on the device we want and the content around it is accessible, when those things come together, then anything is possible. Right. Now, opposed to the idea of the name and shame file, tell us about some of the companies and some of the brands who are making headway and are shining beacons of light. A number of the examples I like to use um, are outside of Australia. That's not to say there aren't great things happening in this country, but there are just a few that I think do provide um, that sort of international beacon, if you like. Um, one I'd like to start with is the BBC. Um, the BBC in the UK are doing fantastic uh, work. Their content uh, and their website and uh, their media presence, they're one of the most media-rich websites and um, portals on the world stage at the moment uh, and a lot of people argue that to make content accessible it also has to be ugly and you can't do really cool stuff when you make things accessible well the BBC have shown that you can have audio description you can have captioned video you can have a very accessible news website you can have a very big website with lots of content but still make it easy to find things and even right down to children's games um, being very accessible I think that's a great example Another one is ironically Target USA, and I say ironically because it got sued by the National Federation for the Blind because their website was so inaccessible. When they Target lost that case, they then decided, well, maybe we should do something about that, and a few years later, the NFB actually gave them an award for making their website so accessible. So sometimes, again, that big stick <laughs> was required, <laughs> but look, in fairness to Target USA, they took that on board and realized, again, if they're going to make it good, oh, let's make it great. Around. Yeah, and they've really taken that message on board. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time and we would be able to pick this up in terms of questions that you may have for Dr. Scott Hollier in our final episode of All Things Digital and All Things Accessible. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. So, Scott, once again, thank you very much for this episode and um, be ready for the questions. Thank you, Kenneth. It's a pleasure. So join us again on that final episode. Remember to send your questions through. All things digital, all things accessible. This is Kenneth Poir signing off. And this episode was edited by Matthew Clark.